Well, hello and welcome. You know, I'm, before I dive in, I'm having a little chuckle in the back of my mind. Uh, when the service started, I was sitting up in the front row and connected to YouTube and on the live chats and just been blown away at kind of that functionality and that option. But I had to chuckle that sort of since the service started to me getting up to preach now, the number of people connected and watching has increased, which means there are a whole bunch of you watching who have no idea what the fire is doing in the background uh, and, and kind of probably being a little bit distracted by that. So hopefully, you know, I'll explain that in a moment. Uh, but what was really amazing to me is as I'm watching on YouTube and just kind of being connected, I'm realizing that, you know, live streaming we've done for the sake of our community and for the sake of our congregation so that we can still kind of meet together even though we're apart. Uh, but it's, it's blowing me away that we literally are reaching the world. Uh, you know, I'm not just talking about my mom and dad who are watching from South Africa. Hi, mom. Hi, dad. Love you. Miss you. Uh, but, you know, we've got somebody connected watching from Korea right now. And that just gives me goosebumps that we're able to, to spread the message of Jesus Christ. We're able to take the gospel and we're able to share it with the world. Uh, so wherever you're watching us from right now, our prayer is that you would encounter God today. Of course, by coming in late, which still, you know, I'm chuckling that we're, you know, late to church in our own house, but be that as it may, uh, if you've come in a little bit late, you may have missed the message that today is a communion service. Uh, and so we're going to end with communion. For those of you who are in the area, come and join us at 11.15 here at the church for a drive-through communion. If you cannot do that, that's totally fine. Make sure at some point you push pause, get the elements, and then join us for, for communion. But let's go on as we journey. You've heard it already. You know it. We're in Daniel. Uh, we're journeying through the book of Daniel under that theme, God is in control. Uh, and so today we're going to dive back in into Daniel chapter 3. And kind of before I really get into it, and before we unpack Daniel chapter 3, I'm reminded of how much music moves us and how powerful music is in our lives. You know, this is one of the reasons why we sing worship songs, why we sing and, and we celebrate and worship Jesus through music, because music has this incredible power to move us. It, it speaks to us. It resonates us resonates with us, I should say, uh, you know, and, and it captures our moods. It almost doesn't matter what mood you're in, you'll find music that supports that. And so for many of us, you know, in the middle of maybe we're feeling down, we're feeling depressed, we're feeling frustrated, uh, we may be feeling angry or, or just confused. And so for some of us, it's kind of just natural to put in the earbuds and push play on, on those favorite tunes. Uh, for others of us, it might be we're celebrating, we're happy, we're filled with life and joy, and so we need some background music to pump that up. And, and we have all these genres of music that minister to us, that speak to us, that serve us. You know, as I think about genres of music, there's one that amazes me. I don't listen to it a lot, but, but it amazes me and, and fascinates me. And it's a genre of music that is typically known as spirituals. Uh, historically, it, was, it used to be called Negro spirituals, and kind of quite obviously that has changed over time, uh, but it's that sense of spirituals, and I'm thinking of songs like Nobody Knows the Troubles I've Seen, or Oh Lord, Do Remember Me, and of course, Lord there is spelled L-A-W-D, uh, or, or the old one, Hold On, and there's this it, kind of this power and this passion to these spiritual songs. 
Uh, you can hear the tension, the strain, the trial, the tears. You can hear the prayers in the middle of the songs. You can hear the weeping as people go through these experiences, yet are able to turn them into music and then sing them. When I was kind of looking up the spirituals and some of their history and, and some of the definitions to them, I, I was reminded that these spirituals, uh, it's a genre of music that is purely and solely the creation of generations of African Americans which merged African cultural heritage with the experiences of being held in bondage in slavery. At first, during that transatlantic slave trade, uh, and then also for centuries afterwards through the domestic slave trade. You know, spirituals encompass the sing songs, the work songs, the plantation songs that evolved into what we now know as the blues, and even some of the gospel church, uh, gospel music we use in church has been influenced by these old spirituals. Yes, many are rooted in biblical stories. But they describe the extreme hardships endured by African Americans who were enslaved from the 17th century all the way through to the end of the 1800s. And I kind of pause and go, well, why is it that they amaze me so much? Why is it that they fascinate me? Why is it that I can listen to them and be moved kind of right at at a heart level and at a, a gut level? Why am I moved by these songs? And maybe it's because they're songs of prayer. But it's prayers that are being uttered in the midst of pain and turmoil. Yet often the pain and turmoil that gets addressed and kind of gets acknowledged gets moved aside as the prayer becomes this hope for the future. In many of these spiritual songs, it's almost like there's this declaration that what I'm experiencing, this pain, this slavery, this hardship... I don't see that as reality. This is not how things will end. This is not how it will be in the end. And so there's this incredible hope. As as those who sing the songs in the middle of these just terrible, inhumane circumstances acknowledge and pray and look forward with hope to the future. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that I am disinclined to sing in the middle of hardship. If, if I'm down, if I'm frustrated, if I'm angry, if I'm feeling accosted, if I'm feeling enslaved, if I'm feeling oppressed, I'm not about to break forth in song. That, that's not where my heart goes. And maybe that's why these songs amaze me is because they teach us that probably we should learn to be able to do that. We need to get to that place where we are able to worship regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. And that's a little bit of what we see in Daniel chapter 3 today. It's this whole idea of being able to worship in the fire. And just how do we worship in the fire? You know, we began in Daniel chapter 1, and in Daniel chapter 1, we're reminded that God is in control. Regardless of circumstances, regardless of what things look like, God is sovereign. God is in control over all things, and God invites us to simply be faithful, to trust Him, to serve Uh, to to do what he calls us to do, and then to leave the results to him. And that's echoed even in the the incredible chapter of Daniel chapter 2. To be faithful where we're planted, to serve God and to worship him alone. And now as we go into Daniel chapter 3, I'm going to do it a little bit differently today. I'm not going to read Daniel chapter 3. I I will refer to a couple of verses as we go through. Uh, But Daniel chapter 3 is a really long portion of a really well-known story. So I'm going to summarize the story, pick out a few things, 
And I'm going to encourage you after the service today, why not go and spend a little bit of time reading through Daniel chapter 3 and allowing God by His Holy Spirit to bring out some of those verses to speak to you and to minister to you. So go ahead and do that at some point today. Daniel chapter 3, as you heard, as you've already seen by now, it's Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who end up in the fire. And of course, if you grew up in church uh, over the last couple of years, maybe the last generation, and you're familiar with Veggie Tales, well, then you know all about Rack Shack and Benny and the Bunny Song. And I've just put that into your mind right now, for those of you who know that. Uh, but basically, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And we covered that last week. He has this dream, and there's this statue that kind of symbolizes the nations that will come and go. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar is told that the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. It's their empire. It's his power that has this gold. And so we go into chapter 3, and we don't know the timeline between chapter 2 and chapter 3. We don't know if it was really soon after, or if maybe it's a few years later. But certainly from the flow of the story, it makes sense. Nebuchadnezzar has had this dream, and now for whatever reason, Nebuchadnezzar decides he's going to build a statue. A, a, a gold, and probably gold-plated, but this gold statue that he's going to build. And so he does. He builds this gold statue. And of course, historians and scholars and, and biblical commentators have grappled with the idea of, is the statue a statue of Nebuchadnezzar? Or is it the statue of one of the local deities? Is it a statue to a god? And there's kind of a lot of debate about that, and it almost doesn't really matter. Uh, although most tend to say it's probably a deity of sorts, or at least it's the personification of the ideals of Babylon. So it's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's not really a statue of Nebuchadnezzar that he wants everyone to worship. It's sort of the statue of, look at how great we are. Look at how great Babylon is. Look at how great uh, the empire is. And so he builds the statue and then issues a decree that everyone has to worship the statue. You know, in verse, verse 2 of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So basically, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is calling all the powerful, all the influential, all the movers and shakers of his day. If something like this was going to happen today, uh, if we imagined that, well then the king would be inviting all the politicians and all the celebrities all those who influence, all those who have power or authority, or at least influence over society and over the world. And so he calls them all together, and he has his herald proclaim in verse 4. Uh, the herald proclaims, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning furnace. So basically, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, worship my idol or die. Those are your two options. And so the music plays and everyone falls down and starts worshiping the idol. And, and Nebuchadnezzar thinks, there we go, awesome, I've got what I wanted. Everyone's doing what I want them to do. Or at least so Nebuchadnezzar thought. Because... Rakshak and Benny do not. 
And we read this in, in verse 8. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that's from the end of chapter 2. They're appointed over the province. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, we can kind of read that verse and, and almost immediately we see these guys are jealous about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're jealous that they were, were promoted. They're jealous of how far they've gone and come. And so uh, they're kind of like, no, 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 we want to get rid of them. And well, here's a great option. We know that if you don't worship, you're going to be thrown in the fire. And they don't worship, so we can finally get rid of them. So they go to Nebuchadnezzar and they point out and they kind of accuse them. And Nebuchadnezzar is enraged. He's issued a decree. He's the king. Everyone must obey him. But yet, here are three who go against his decree. Uh, you know, for Nebuchadnezzar, this is an affront on his authority. This is an affront on his power and a challenge. And of course, we understand that the king can't let that happen. If these three foreigners disobey what I'm saying, well, who knows what other might happen? Who else might disobey me? And what other challenge I might have to my authority? But Nebuchadnezzar calls them in and he knows them and, and there's obviously a little sense of relationship because Nebuchadnezzar gives them an opportunity to kneel and to worship or if they don't, they'll be thrown in the fire. And so in verse 16, they answer. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And of course, now it's not just a challenge to his authority from afar. It's not just a story and an accusation of three people who've disobeyed. Now to Nebuchadnezzar's face, these three youngsters boldly say, we're not going to worship. Our God will save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship. And so the king is enraged. Uh, we read he has the furnace risen, or sorry, the heat in the furnace seven times hotter than usual. And then he gets them thrown in. And it's so hot, and, and I can just imagine just that heat emanating in the blazing furnace that even the soldiers carrying them to the furnace, those soldiers die in the process. And the three of them get thrown into this furnace. And then in verse 24, we read this incredible account. Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And of course, this is astounding. Nebuchadnezzar is looking into the furnace, obviously from a safe distance, and he's kind of going, wait a minute, we threw three in, and those three are walking around, and in fact, there's a fourth one with them. The four of them are strolling around. They're not 
kind of screaming in pain and agony. They seem to be just chilling in the fire. What on earth is going on? You know, when we think about that fourth individual, who exactly is that fourth? Commentators and biblical scholars have debated for centuries. Uh, for many of us, we, we kind of have almost landed on that sense that it, it, maybe it's Jesus. And I understand why we've landed on there, especially with the language that Nebuchadnezzar uses of one of the, that looks like a son of the gods. Uh, but the reality is we don't know. We don't know if it's Jesus. We don't know if it's a servant angel sent from God. We don't know if it's a personification of the Holy Spirit. We don't know with authority. But it almost doesn't matter. Because when we read through, we understand it's a servant of God. It is someone who has gone on God's behalf to save and to minister to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he keeps them safe in the midst of the fire. So, of course, Nebuchadnezzar calls them out. And then we read in verse 26, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched. There was not even smell of fire on them. And then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. And it's almost like we've seen this repeat in chapter 2. Just as in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar sits on the throne and believes himself all-powerful and ends in chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar is prostrate before Daniel, worshiping God. Well, so too, now at the end of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar once again praises the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The God who saved them in the fire. This God is the true God. And of course, there's, there's not even a hint of fire damage. There's no smell of smoke on them as they've walked around the fire. It's almost as though they were just walking in fresh air with nothing touching or affecting them. God has indeed rescued them. So as we read a chapter like this, well, what could it be saying to us? What could this be telling us who read it now a couple of thousand years later? Is it telling us that we will be spared from fire-like experiences if we don't bend or, or bend the knee? Will we be spared from hardship if our faith in God is strong enough? Well, the short answer is no, and I'll explain that in a few moments. But when I read through chapter 3, I, I see two main thoughts that chapter 3 challenges us with and that forces us to engage with. And those two thoughts are idolatry and worship. And those two obviously go together. That sense of idolatry and then the response of worship. And when we worship, worship in both the good and the bad, in the fire or not. So let me think about idolatry for a moment. Let's just talk about idolatry. You know, the dictionary defines idolatry as extreme admiration, love, or reverence for something or someone. We might talk about idolizing someone because we admire them and we want to become like them, and so we set up an idol of this person. 
not a physical idol, but in our lives. Well, I want to be like them. I want to do what they do. We see this in children. They, they idolize their heroes, and they run around like their heroes, and they want to copy what their heroes do. They want to be like them. And this idea of idolatry, it's based on the Greek word idolatria, which is both from idolon, idol, and latria, which is worship. And idolatry is literally idol worship. Setting up a physical idol, an object, and then worshiping that object. And that's historically what it was. Historically, objects or idols were made, they were sculptured, they were cast. And then humans would bring sacrifices, they would bring offerings to those idols in the hopes that the gods would answer. And they would bring their offerings to the idols, hoping that their gods would bless them, or their gods would hold back from wrath and appease Some of you might remember Rob Bell's sermon many, many years ago about everything is spiritual, and he touches on this topic and and kind of points out that idols always demand sacrifice. Idols always demand sacrifice. When we read through history, especially ancient history, uh, we know people would sometimes even offer their own children as a sacrifice Because they believed it would appease the wrath or the anger of the gods. Or it would change even the weather pattern. If there was a season of drought and we need the rain for our crops. So people would offer literally even their own children. And now you and I might read that and we would think to ourselves, what barbarians? What sort of uneducated people would do such a thing? What sort of unenlightened people would sacrifice their own children? That would sacrifice blood for for these fake gods, these idols. And we don't sacrifice for our idols anymore. We're educated. We're enlightened. And of course, I sort of go, well, are we? Do we no longer sacrifice for gods? Sure, we might not have physical idols that are cast and set up in our homes and in our yards. Sure, we might not bring literal sacrifices in that sense, But as R.C. Sproul said, the most basic sin found in the world is that of idolatry. John Kelvin also says, every one of us is, from our mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. You and I might not worship statues of stone or images of gold, but we have plenty of idols in our life. Plenty of idols for which we sacrifice over and over. So let me ask you, what idols do you sacrifice for? What things are are consuming and and demanding sacrifice from you? You know, I'm I'm hesitant to give illustrations because I know that for many of us, there are things that started as something good in our life. You know, maybe your doctor told you, you need to get out a little bit more. You need to get a bit of exercise, get a bit of fresh air, go out and take up golf. And that was a good thing. But now you're trying to play golf three or four times a week. And you're sacrificing family time or sacrificing finances for that. Has it maybe become an idol? And there's so many things like that. It doesn't matter whether it's fishing, computer games, gardening, cooking, you name it. They're all good things in and of themselves. But idols demand sacrifice. And even those good things slowly demand more and more. And they demand our money so that we find ourselves paying more and more and throwing more and more money at our idols. 
And if you're ever worried about, or if you're not sure if something possibly is an idol that you're sacrificing money for, well, have you ever held back on telling your spouse how much you really paid for something? I had a chuckle a couple of months ago. I was on a Zoom call with some friends, and one of our friends uh, mentioned that he had bought some new golf equipment. So I'm just going to stick on the golf theme for a moment. And he had bought some new golf equipment, and, and most of the guys in the group in this Zoom chat were all kind of a little jealous, of course, because he's new golf equipment. Uh, and somebody asked him, well, how, did you tell your wife how much you paid for it? To which he started going, she's just, you know, okay, okay. Maybe that's something that needs to be looked at in our lives. You see, idolatry starts with something that I want to do for myself because I need to. But very quickly, it becomes all about me. And it becomes an idol that demands sacrifice. Nebuchadnezzar built an idol to symbolize his grandeur, to symbolize the power and the might of Babylon to symbolize his wealth and and what he had done with Babylon. But it didn't end with just an idol. It ended with him demanding worship and demanding if that worship is not done, there had to be sacrifice. You see, idolatry leads to worship. That's the second thing that I think about or that jumps out of me of this passage. It's this idea of worship. You and I were made to worship. Some of you might remember Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. I know many of us have worked through it. The opening words in chapter one are literally, it's not about you. And that's a, that's a smack through the face for many of us. When we're talking about the purpose of life, for many of us, it's all about me. Rick Warren reminds us, it's not about you. The purpose of life finds its meaning in worship. You and I were created to worship. It's in our DNA. We cannot help but worship. And if you don't believe me, just look at crowds at sports matches. Look at crowds at concerts. Look at at the celebrity culture around us in the world. We worship all the time. It's in our DNA. And we worship because we were made to worship. But the problem is, we've directed our worship away from the true object of worship. As has been said before, we no longer worship the Creator, we worship the creatures. D.L. Moody said, Satan doesn't care what we worship as long as we don't worship God. And worship comes from the old English word worth-ship. And it was literally to give worth to something, to give value to something. And so we give this value and this worth as we worship it. And so when I say we were made to worship, the truth is we were made to worship God. God is to be our object of focus. And the scriptures invite us to worship over and over and over again. In Psalms, Psalm 71 verse 8, my mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. I'm I'm created to worship God all through the day. Psalm 150 verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. As long as I have breath, as long as I draw breath, my breath coming out should be praise. And then even Paul gives this this powerful hymn of praise. And in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, he says, For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him, that is to Jesus Christ, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Over and over, Scripture invites us, it instructs us to worship God. 
Now, you know, for some of us, that's really easy to do when things are going well. And when, when I'm healthy, when perhaps I'm not going through financial challenges, when I'm happy, when I'm feeling fulfilled, when life seems to be going well, it's easy or easier to worship God. But what about when we lose those things? What about when we get a diagnosis of cancer for ourselves or for someone we love? What about a child with a terminal illness? What about financial struggles or work environments that just sap the life out of us and there seems to be no hope and no change? Can we worship then? Can we really do what those old spirituals did to sing in a slave line, to sing and praise God even though we're being oppressed? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer this question for us in verse 16, which we've read. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. For them, their hope is in God. Their worship is directed to God alone. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what might face them, regardless of the challenge to their faith, they won't be swayed. They will worship God and trust Him alone. And you know, for some of us, we might read those verses and and kind of skim over them almost. But what makes it so much more powerful is at this stage in Israelites' history, they didn't have the same view of, of the resurrection the way we understand it, the way Scripture unpacks it and explains it even into the New Testament. These guys don't come before God with this promise of heaven and of glory and, and in the presence of God. Yet they still simply and humbly trust God. And so they say, we will worship God alone, even if it means being thrown into the fire. Regardless of what may happen, we will worship our God. You know, there are so many unscrupulous ministers out there who would tell you that God wants you healthy, God wants you wealthy, God wants you blessed. All you need is to have faith in God because God only has good things in store for you. When I read that or I hear that, I say to myself, you have no understanding of Scripture. Not only is that contrary to our own lived experiences, that's contrary to Scripture. Jesus himself says, in this life you will have trouble. In this life you will have trouble. But fear not. Fear not. Jesus goes on to say, not only is he with us, but he's overcome the troubles of this life. And so when we sing, nobody knows the troubles I feel, nobody knows the troubles I've been through, Jesus does. Jesus has been in those troubles. Jesus has been through those troubles. And Jesus is able to walk with us in the midst of those trials and those troubles. Because in this life you will have trouble. But fear not. Learn to worship in the fire. You know, as I kind of land this morning, I want to land just a little bit differently You see, when I talk about idolatry and I talk about worship and I talk about worshiping in the fire in the midst of those challenging places, I know it's going to be easy for us to almost feel guilty. You know, it becomes a guilt trip of, oh, oh, great, thanks, Brian. I'm supposed to worship God alone and I'm supposed to worship Him in the fire. And Well, you know what? That's really difficult. I know that. It is. 
There's no easy answer. There's no simple, if you just do this, everything will be good. Now, we know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were spared, and there's this incredible account, but many who followed Jesus, many who called Jesus Lord, many who trust God went into the fire and did not come out, even though they worshiped, even though they trusted God. So how might I land a little differently this morning? You know, when I think about idolatry and worship, idolatry and worship for me speaks of longing. It speaks of a desire of our heart. It speaks of finding a place of belonging and finding a place that fulfills us. You know, for so many of us, we might feel like we're, we're chasing something in life that, that won't satisfy us. And we keep consuming, and we keep adding, and we keep sacrificing for these idols, but they just don't satisfy us. You know, I wonder if God hasn't given us that sense of, dis- of dissatisfaction, because it's God trying to get our attention. It's God trying to say, you know, those things you're filling, whether it's, it's substance abuse, or whether it's something that looks good, but now it's become an idol that you're worshiping and sacrificing for, those things will never fully satisfy And as we chase after that, it's God saying that hole, that longing, that desperation can only be filled by me. You know, I heard it said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is really looking for God. And isn't that a powerful statement? You know, we could debate it. We could sit over coffee and philosophize for hours But I think that speaks to the truth that so many of us are looking, we're longing, and we've got these idols that we worship that are filling up our lives and filling up our time, and God is saying that speaks to the longing that only I can answer, regardless of whether you're in a good place or a bad place. And so this morning, I want to land with, let us learn to worship God. As we see that only He can fulfill those desires of our hearts. Only He is the true object of worship. Because God does not call for that endless blood sacrifice. Jesus Himself said, My burden is light, my yoke is easy. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. We find rest in Jesus. So I don't know what you're going through at the moment. I don't know what fire you're in right now. All I know when I read through this story and when I read through Scripture is Jesus promises to be with us. And He calls us to simply trust Him and to worship Him. And so for some of us, that means we will get through this fire and we'll be able to tell of His goodness in that way. For others, we won't. But I know that ultimately we will stand before God and we will understand And we will still be able to say, God, I worship you. For you are good, you are sovereign, and you are in control. What are you worshiping? What are you sacrificing for? Come to Jesus, who gives life to each one of us. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, as I read through Daniel chapter 3, as I contemplate this image of idolatry, this image of worship. And and yes, it's such a powerful story and it's such a hope-filled story of three men who stand up against the oppression, stand up against those who would seek to have them conform in worshiping false gods. 
And God, it, it reminds me that I can stand and say I trust God and I will only worship God. And God, I thank you that in the story you took these three men and spared them. And it fills us with hope. But at the same time as we read through the story, it reminds us how easily our hearts wander. Oh, we have this desperate longing. We have this deep need. It's almost like there's this void. And we try to fill it with so many other things. Distractions. Addictive substances. Pleasure. And we fill it and we consume and we fill and we fill and we discover we're never truly satisfied. And we discover we've simply been sacrificing over and over. And God, you call to us and say, that longing can only be filled by me. And Jesus, I pray that we would hear that today and we would turn to you and find life in you, Jesus. God, for those who are watching who may indeed be in the middle of a terrible fire, and they feel as though they're about to be consumed and burned alive, oh God, I pray that they would experience your presence there. That God, you might be able and would indeed take them out of the fire. But God, I know that for some of us, for your glory and for your purposes that one day will make sense. You leave us in the fire. I thank you that you don't leave us alone. We can still cling to you. We can still trust you. We can still have hope and we can still worship in the fire. God, ultimately our prayer is may you be glorified. May we learn to worship. We ask this in your name, Jesus. And together we say, amen, amen.